we read together to remind us of where we are going, that is towards Jesus, allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're with us today. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to say hi right after the service. If you have a copy of Scripture, will you join me in two places today? Hebrews 11 and Exodus 12. Hebrews 11, Exodus 12. If you've got your phone and you want to follow along, on the screen is a QR code. You can pull out your phone, camera, ta- uh, snap a quick photo of that. It'll give you a link where you can go to the central hub, follow along with the scriptures and read along with us. Um, wanted to, to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, we, we have some available uh, that you can purchase or pick up right outside in the lobby in our resource area. Uh, the Fresh Start Bibles are out there. You also can uh, take a look at some of the really awesome uh, church merch. We've got these brand new uh, quarter zips in Faith 2.0. They're out there. You can check those out as well as some other things. And uh, our team out in the lobby would love to help you take some next steps in your, in your faith. And uh, we, are, we are wrapping up today a collection of uh, sermons over the last couple months that we've been looking at called Stories of Faith. And we've been looking at some of the people listed in Hebrews 11 uh, here in the New Testament that refers us back to their full stories in the Old Testament, which help us gain an understanding of how they demonstrated and lived out their faith. And uh, as we look at their stories and examine them, it's giving us some insights, some understanding on how we can live a loyal love for Jesus, how we can have a life of faith, how we can have faith in God as well. So I hope you're ready to take some notes. We're going to dive into some things today, and uh, it's going to be a good, good day. Hebrews 11, this is what the word says. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his own great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover, to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground, but when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were drowned. This is the word of the Lord, friends. And and what I love about this passage here, you see two things that we understand a little bit, but point us towards something symbolically that we discover in the New Testament. We see the Passover, which links to what we celebrate as communion, and you see the Red Sea where they passed through and all that represented their past was buried in the sea. That's what we celebrate in water baptism. 
We see here in the old and the new linked together. And uh, what you need to understand if you're kind of new to, to maybe studying the scripture or kind of new to the Bible and this church thing is that, that the children of Israel uh, started with one man and over the years grew generation after generation after generation and they were growing in number and they ended up through a series of events in the land of Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they continued to grow in number, but as a new pharaoh came into power and then another pharaoh came into power over the years, they grew more and more antagonistic towards the people of God. And these pharaohs grew more and more evil. They grew more and more arrogant. They grew more and more um, afraid of the people of God and began to enslave them, put them uh, and dominate them, made them be their literal slaves, tried to kill them off, tried to do everything they could to keep them from growing in number and taking over and and, and God's people just continue to experience the protection and the providence and the blessing of God in their lives and the things that God promised to be true of them were they were seeing in really nuanced subterranean ways even though on the surface everything seemed to continue to be full of pain and struggle. And you find the children of Israel here in this moment in a land of Egypt under an evil slave dictator who wanted nothing to do with God and this is the story of God's people. This is the story of God's people. This is where we find ourselves as we look at what God is doing here in their life. It helps us understand maybe what God wants to do in, in our life. And it's not so much just about us. And in fact, as you begin to look at the, the story of Scripture, and you, you get into the Bible, and, and you could go back and read Genesis 1 all the, re, all the way through, and now we're, Exodus 1 is really where the, the children of Israel kind of pick up steam, their story. And Exodus is the story of them exiting out of Egypt into a new land, into a new season, and how God delivered them and walked with them and protected them and it's a beautiful, wonderful story that I really encourage you to take some time to look at and get familiar with. And, and as we do, I think you're going to notice some things in these stories. Number one, I think one of the things that you're going to see about the story of God's people is this, that the story of faith is really about God. In fact, your story, as amazing as you are, is actually about God too. The story of God's people is about God. The story of the Bible is about God. It's a story that has nuance and twists and turns and things, surprises, but it's really a story about God. Have you ever um, been watching a movie? And while you're watching the movie, I, I don't know if you're, you're like this, I, I like to, to practice my gift of discernment uh, while I watch movies. That's a little bit of sarcasm, by the way. Uh, and Bible humor, uh, but uh, I love to watch the movie, and I don't know if you're like me, but I, I, I enjoy the movie, but I enjoy guessing what's going to happen in the movie more. And anybody like that, you're like, oh, I know what's going to come watch my life. This is going to happen. This is gonna, oh, I can't believe they're about to do this. This is the dumbest thing in the world. And then something unexpected happens. You're like, oh, I did not see that coming. And it surprises you, and it takes you to be like, oh, that's how he saw dead people. Oh, I didn't know. Like, and all of a sudden, like, it's messing with your mind, and you're like, I, I didn't see that one coming. That kind of caught me off guard a little bit. The story of God's people is a whole lot like that. 
where you're sitting there like, oh, watch, 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 here's what's coming. And last week we saw Moses was born, and Moses like had these amazing circumstances happen in his life, and he ended up not just being a Hebrew, but somehow made his way into the palace, and while every one of his people were being enslaved and imprisoned and beaten and, and, and treated terribly, Moses found favor, and he, he grew up in the palace and had an education and had prominence and influence and privilege. And you're like, oh, watch, this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, he ends up in a desert. And you're like, no, 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 Moses, Moses, you're supposed to be in the palace and, like, change the power dynamic and bring the people of God free. That's what you're supposed to do, Moses. And Moses is like, no, nah, peace out. I, like, got mad. I killed somebody. I'm running for my life. I'm going to hide out in the desert for a little while and be a shepherd. And then God gets his attention, calls him back, and he ends up joining his people. And you're like, ah, oh, dang, Moses, you were supposed to, like, be the guy. And yet we're still stuck in the same position. Still frustrated by the pain and the pressures of our world. It's not what I thought it would be. The evil and the suffering that we're experiencing hasn't happened. And somewhere in the midst of all of this story, God was setting the stage to reveal his character. God was setting the stage to reveal who he was. Moses indeed is a foreshadow of Christ. That's foreshadow. What does that mean? It means that Moses' life was like a shadow that went ahead of Christ. It resembled some of Christ, but it wasn't Christ. Did you know that your shadow isn't you? It's just a shadow of you? Am I getting too deep? Are we all right? Everybody seen the shadow? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like the shadow's out ahead. It's like, oh, look, there's my shadow. Well, it's kind of my shadow. It's a little skinnier than the real thing, but I like my shadow. Right? Like, we get like, Moses was a shadow of Christ to come. Moses was indeed called and sent to deliver the people of God out of Egypt into a land, into a place, into a new season of life. It was a foreshadow it was a foretelling it was a little hint hint wink 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 pick up on the hints there is going to come a deliverer who is going to save his people his name is jesus he was a foreshadow and the israelites exodus out of slavery where they were in egypt for over 400 years 430 years and over 400 of those years were spent in slavery in suffering having to wrestle with the, the, the deformation of God's creation where evil was wreaking havoc all around and they were crying out for a deliverer. And God called Moses to a specific task for a specific purpose, for a specific thing. And what's interesting as this story begins to unfold is that God was setting up a showdown to be the God of all gods and to confront a Pharaoh whose heart was hard, full of arrogance and pride, who believed he himself was sent as a God to his people. That was how he thought. And Pharaoh refused to acknowledge that Yahweh was Yahweh, that God was God, and instead set himself up to be his own God. Friends, I think it's really important that you would understand uh, that pride will always lead to a hard heart. The Bible says Pharaoh's heart was incredibly hard. 
Why was it hard? Because he was walking in this pride and this arrogance as if he was God himself. The Bible says in the New Testament that pride causes God to resist you. But he'll give grace to the humble. God will give grace to the humble, but he will resist the proud. Pride will always lead you to a hard heart, unable and unwilling to hear the word of the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh again and again and again, bringing the word of God to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused to change. He, he refused to let God's people go. He refused to acknowledge that God was God and he was not. He kept holding on to his own lordship instead of relinquishing it and acknowledging that Yahweh was God Almighty. Pharaoh's obstinate response to Yahweh ended up setting a huge competition between their names, their nations, and their reputations. Yahweh had attached his name and his reputation to Israel's flourishing, so he committed to protecting them at all costs. And when you start to read in Exodus 7 through Exodus 12, you see 10 different times Moses came and said, hey, let my people go. And he was like, no, no, I ain't letting them go. When I was in the Bible, when I was a little kid, we used to have this song to sing and learn this, to, to learn this story. It was something like this, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go. No, yeah, 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 yeah. And you had like the, like the yeah, 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 yeah. Like some of you will never forget this message. <laughs> and, and you remember the story from this song, how they would come again and again, hey, let my people go. And they're like, nah, uh these are my people. I'm holding on to them. I am God. Yahweh is not God. And there was a showdown, and these ten plagues came, one after another, over the course of time. Water in the Nile turned to blood. Then there were frogs that went everywhere. Gnats eventually came was another plague. Then there were flies that, like, bit, like, hornets and horsefly kind of flies. And then there was a livestock where every livestock was killed and destroyed. Then every Egyptian ended up with boils all over their body. And then there was hail that fell from the sky consistently, locust, darkness, and then eventually the 10th plague where the firstborn was killed for those who didn't trust in Yahweh. And this idea of the firstborn dying, many theologians have, have kind of commented that, that perhaps this was a reversal of what Pharaoh did in Exodus chapter 1. Where he destroyed and demanded that every firstborn of all of Israel and Hebrew be bo boys be killed. And now there's a great reversal and almost a redemption of these things. At the deepest level, you need to understand that the victory won by God in this showdown of this high noon, quick draw between Pharaoh who thought he was God and the Almighty who indeed was God, where God looked at, God looked at Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, you need to relent. And Pharaoh's like, no, I ain't going to do it. And God's like, fine, I'll be your huckleberry. Let's go. At the very core, you need to understand that these plagues was a victory where God was winning over and defeating and confronting the false gods that Egypt worshipped. 
there was a, a god called Happy, H-A-P-I, that they worshipped in Egypt. It was the god of the Nile. There was Hept, H-E-P-T, that was the god of frogs, or, or illustrated by a frog, and it was representative of the god of fertility and childbirth. Ra was the god of the sun, and it was outraged at the very darkness that Yahweh brought. Hat-hot had the form of a heifer. Epis, A-P-I-S, that of a bull. The flying hornet or, 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 or fly symbolized Egypt itself, and Pharaoh himself considered to be sent and born of God as a god. Yet all of these gods of Egypt were helpless in the face of the God of Israel. Because there is no God like our God. Each of the plagues was this, uh, like a, a wrath or a curse being manifest in the world. Where the depravity of the world and the evil that existed in the world because Adam and Eve allowed sin into it from that decision to rebelliously reject God's ways and decided to eat of the knowledge of good and evil of their own selves and in their own element of small s sovereignty decided to make a power play to be like God themselves and evil entered the world and now the deformation of God's good creation was a result and began to occur in our world known as sin and death. And we experience the same regression of creation because of the rebellious choice that we choose to trust our own sovereignty still to this day to define good and evil on our terms instead of surrendering to God's ways ourselves. Friends, when we sin, we are in essence leading our own mutiny against the ways of God. We ourselves are trying to define good and evil on our terms instead of surrendering to the ways of God ourselves. And whenever we try to define good and evil on our own terms, we, we, we find ourselves edging closer to the deformation of God's goodness in our, in our life, in our world, in our existence. The, if we are meant to flourish with God, we begin to see the shriveling up of our lives without God in those choices that we make. And each of the plagues, though, know this, each of the plagues that God brought came with a warning on its own and an opportunity, Pharaoh, to repent and relent and change his, his mind and let the people go, and they refused. Pharaoh refused. He continued to reject God, and thus the wrath was poured out or it was manifest within the form of each of these plagues. Why? Because injustice had to be dealt with in a just way. There's a cause and effect penalty in our world that happens. It came with a warning label. Did, did you, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you buy a chainsaw, um, because I buy so many of them, when you, buy, when you buy a chainsaw, it comes with a warning and on the warning label, it says something to caution, this may cause dismemberment. Really? There's a warning label. Is it because they don't want you to use the chainsaw or buy it? No. It's because they don't want you to be an idiot. They're trying to protect you from you. I saw a meme recently. It said something like, I don't think with all of our technology, we're actually getting as smart as we think. It used to be when you bought a car and you got the user manual for the car, it just told you like how to operate it, maintain it, and go. Now it comes with all sorts of warning labels. Warning, don't drink the antifreeze. 
They're just saying, like, of course, we're not really as smart as we think we are, friends. Sometimes we do really dumb things. And there's a cause and effect for the choices that we make. And there are cause and effects of the things. But, but hear me. Did God know what Pharaoh was going to choose each time he chose it? Yeah, God wasn't caught off guard by any of that. But he still gave him the option to repent at every single turn. Because there were warnings that came along with it. Each of the plagues impacted the land where they lived, yet there was a protection and a provision from every one of them for the Hebrews. For the people of God, there was certainly discomfort because of what was happening around them. But God preserved them. The Egyptians' cattle died. The Hebrews' cattle was spared. The Egyptians, where they lived, darkness covered it, but there was light in the houses and the place where the Hebrews lived. Every plague that came on, on the Egyptians who refused to repent and turn from God, every one, there was a provision and a protection for the people of God. That's good news. God preserved them. Hear me, though. They were still present for that tribulation. They were still present for that pain. If your theology is one that says, in the world in which you live, just keep holding on because one day you'll escape it all, I would encourage you to go back and re-examine Scripture a little bit. Because God doesn't promise that we get out of all trouble. He just says that we will be protected in all trouble. In fact, Jesus prayed it like this. This was Jesus' words, his prayer in John 17 as he was praying for you, praying for me, and praying for those that would follow him. He says, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world, but rather just keep them safe from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation but deliver me from the evil one. A thousand may fall at my right hand and 10,000 at this side, but it will not come near my dwelling, the psalm says. For the people of God, there is something of hope because God was revealing to the Hebrews and to us today an element of his character. His character was a willingness to protect his people. And one of the guarantees of the protection, one of the ways in which God was trying to reveal to his people how to relate to him was in this understanding of a covenant. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Or excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. That's what I meant to say. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. Let's look at how God was setting up some protection, how God was setting up something to provide for them in the midst of the coming of the angel of death that was about to come, this final plague that was coming on Egypt. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, it says this. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instruction to Moses and to Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first of the year for you. God's setting up calendars for them. Announced to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. So practical. 
If a family, though, is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. God's already setting up a, a culture for his people to be generous to provide for other people's needs. This is the goodness of God, the character of God on display in these, these verses. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much each of them can eat. Then the animal you select must be one year old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Verse 6, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire. Come on, God is all about smoking some meat. Everybody's getting hungry. They must smoke and roast the meat over a fire and eat it long, eat it along with bitter salads. Obviously, God doesn't like salad either. Greens and bread made with yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. Nothing gets wasted. These are the instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. Don't miss this next verse. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign, marking the house where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Friends, the story of faith is about God, but the story of faith is about a covenant. It's one about a covenant. Now, this Mosaic covenant that you're going to begin to learn about and you would see play out and understood throughout the book of Exodus is about a whole nation, not just one family or one person, although individuals and families had a part to play in it. In a sense, it is a broad foretelling of the new covenant that would come through Jesus Christ that would be available to all who would believe in him. This Passover represented and pointed to Jesus himself. When it comes to understanding the Bible, reading it, and even understanding God, and some of the, the tough, tough sections, because there's some stuff in the Bible that, man, it's really hard to kind of get your brain around, isn't it? Not, not because... You don't understand the words that are being said, but maybe we don't understand the customs and we don't understand the point. And it just kind of seems like, why do we need to make like a bloody mess for all of this? Like, what, what's the point in all of that? And it's hard to kind of get our minds around. M might I offer three helpful filters for understanding God and the Bible? Filter number one is creation. Why? 
Because through creation and the recreation, it reveals God's ultimate purpose and plan. Reveals God's ultimate purpose and plan. Creation. The story of creation and recreation. Revelation 21 and 22. Tell us of God's ultimate purpose and plan. Number two, the second filter that helps us kind of understand things is this understanding of covenant. Why? Because the covenant demonstrates God's promise and parameters for our relationship with him. So the more you begin to understand the covenants of the Bible and that God is a God of covenant and what it means, it begins to help you understand how to relate to God. So creation, covenant, and finally, stewardship. It's our participation and response to God's promises and purposes within the kingdom of God. Everything as I look about God and think about the scripture, I have to think of it with these thoughts, these filters to, to pass it through. Pass it through an understanding of creation, an understanding of covenant, and an understanding of stewardship. I just saved you from having to go to seminary. You're welcome. It's These three filters will really help you understand some stuff. I want to help us understand this idea of covenant really well, and uh, the folks at the Bible Project did a great job at kind of summarizing and articulating what the covenant is all about, including the Passover meal, and what are the implications for our life today. Let's take a look at that together right now. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. You know, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life, and the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. 
In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is this sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Through the life of Jesus and his sacrifice, the evil and the rebellion and the mutiny that we naturally have against God. Jesus paid for that, to cover it, to remove it, and to see that evil 
that sin and death in us begin to be vanquished and spread, removed from our lives, removed from our stories. Here's the final thought today. And that's this, that the story of faith is one of redemption, deliverance, and salvation from the wrath and curse of sin. The story of faith is one that needs Jesus to take center stage. It needs Jesus to come as the Redeemer. See, the Passover that they celebrated in Exodus 12, that Jesus celebrated with his disciples in the New Testament around wine and bread was this foreshadowing of Jesus coming as the Lamb of God. It was a, a picture of what would take place where, where they would move from death to life themselves because death passes over them and they got to walk out with life. Friends, it's true. When you put your faith in Jesus, the penalty of sin is met and paid for in a moment. I don't know if you realize this, but that, that penalty, that payment, it's great, but we still live in a world full of evil and suffering. And within us, sometimes the old ways try to creep themselves back up, and we still find ourselves trapped, not fully set free from the pull and the power of sin in our own lives. We still struggle. We still get angry. We still curse. We still deal with addictions. We have trouble forgiving. We still sometimes lash out. There's evil and hatred and unforgiveness that likes to live in our world. And we sometimes want harm for other people instead of good for other people. That There is evil within us. And the pull of sin keeps trying to pull us back. But the payment that Jesus made is to help you find freedom from that too. See, what we see in the story of Israel, it was they were set free. And, and, and they were allowed to walk out of Egypt in a moment. But it took them 40 years to remove the toxic effect of Egypt in their own heart and mind. Sometimes the process of walking in freedom, sometimes the process of walking past our shame, walking past our own pain and guilt, our own remorse, our own failures, our own struggles and habits and addictions is a process. That's why he gives us the spirit to empower us with his grace to move beyond it. But one day, friends, when Jesus returns, he will remove and vanquish the very presence of sin and evil in our world. And we'll live in eternity with him. This is our story. Our story, like the story of God's people finds its culmination in the life of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, and the Savior. Your story, it needs a Deliverer, a Savior, and a Redeemer. And on the day when Jesus died, when he was, his blood was poured out, when he breathed his last breath, Revelation chapter 12 gives us a snapshot of what was happening in the heavenly realm at that moment in time. And we find it in Revelation 12, starting in verse 10. It says this, Then I heard a loud voice shouting from the heavens. It has come at last, the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, that's another name for Satan, the serpent, 
The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. See, when Jesus poured out his blood in heaven, the tabernacle in heaven, the, the place in heaven, where Satan had permission to accuse you and accuse me of being wrong, of having evil be our Lord or God, of, of suffering good and evil in our own terms. He lost that privilege and that power. Why? Because sin had been paid for. And he no longer, God wasn't hearing the arguments against you anymore. He fell to the ground. And he's still roaming in our world today. You know what he does? He can't accuse you before God, so you know what he does? He just whispers accusations directly to you instead. So the blood kept him out of being able to accuse you before God in the courts of heaven. But what is it that we can do to silence the voice of the accuser that we hear in our life every day? That Sunday morning when you woke up with a little bit more of a buzzy head because of what you did Saturday night. The regret and the pain of the decisions you made 10 years ago and not thinking that you can do it again. The, the, the pain of, of losing someone and the anger and the angst and the unforgiveness and the the bitterness and the addiction and the struggle. What about those things? How do we overcome those things? Verse 11. And they have defeated him. Who? The brothers and sisters, the saints of God, the people of God. They defeated him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much that they were even afraid to die. Friends, I have one simple question for you. What is your story what's your story of faith what is it for you what is it that you've seen God do in your life where did he redeem you from what did he save you from what has he rescued you from what has he delivered you what bound has what once bound you has now known to be let go of what are the things he tries to accuse you of but he doesn't get to accuse you of anymore Friends, some of you, the best way to silence the voice of the enemy is to go public with your faith in Jesus through water baptism and to tell someone else your story and testimony. The blood gives you the power to legally overcome, but it's when you share the story of what God has done in your life that you silence the whispers of the enemy in your life. Some of you need to start sharing your story. We, we want to help you to do that. That's why we have the stories of faith wall outside in the lobby where you can snap a picture and on the bottom of the polaroid you can write your story in one word or a short phrase what has god done in your life pastor i I'm, i can't i'm too ashamed i don't want anybody to know to know my story they're, they're all going to think that i'm a sinner they already know i i don't want to i mean i was I was bound by some evil. That's, that's, I'm not perfect yet. No one is. That's what the enemy does. He just makes you think, oh yeah, you'll, you'll never get better anyways. You'll never get over it anyways. No sense to tell your story. Oh, you're, you're, it's not perfect yet. None of us are. That's why we publicly take steps in baptism. And then we publicly take steps to share our story because my story might help someone else's story. My faith might help someone else's faith. My victory in overcoming what 
what the, the Lord had set me free from might help someone else being overcome. What's your story? It's time to share your story. It's time to overcome the pull of sin to revert back to the old ways of life. It's time to overcome that, to silence that. Why? Through the blood of the Lamb. It's time to share your story. You know what mine would be? Two words. But God. But God. Ephesians 2, 4 and 6 says, But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. But God, Matthew was lost and on his way to hell. But God, I experienced sexual abuse as a kid. But God was rich in mercy and poured out his love in my life. I was bitter at God and the people of God, but God was rich in mercy and he loved me so much. I was arrogant and full of pride and self-righteous religiousness, but God is rich in mercy and loved me so much. Poured had a grip on my life, but God is rich in mercy and his love for me is so much. People's opinion used to be my God, but God, who is rich in mercy, loved me. It's a story about God anyways. It's a story about his covenant where he did all the heavy lifting anyways. It's a story about him as your deliverer, your rescuer, your redeemer, your restorer, your healer, your comforter, your provider, your God. What's your story? Maybe it's time you started telling your story and you told the devil to shut up in the process. Would you stand with me as we come to the table of the Lord? Would you go ahead and grab your communion elements that, that maybe you pulled, grabbed on your way in? Go ahead and open the top layer, get the bread out and the next layer, juice ready. Would you just bow your heads for a second? God, what, what are you saying to us today? Lord, as we come to this table to celebrate communion, Lord, today we were reminded of the power of that symbol that your body was broken, your blood was poured out to make atonement for us so that the grip that the enemy had, the claim that he had in our lives could be removed and that the power that the enemy had over us 
would be removed. Jesus, you're the one who's worthy of all of our worship. You are the Lamb of God. And Lord, today we are reminded of the power of your blood and provoked by the power of our story of what you've done for us. Lord, that night before you were betrayed, you took some bread, you blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, remember me. Let's do that together. Then you took a cup of wine and you gave thanks for it. You gave it to us and you said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the new covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive sins many. Let's receive that together. Father, we thank you that you invite us into your larger story. We get permission to come into your story because of our faith and belief in who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that today you would seal this word in our heart. Lord, you would provoke us towards honoring you with our stories so that you can get the glory and the honor and praise. And Lord, if there are those here today struggling who need prayer, Lord, I pray that you would help them to take that step of faith and get prayer here in a minute. Lord, for those in the room who are struggling with their own belief and knowing that it's time to go public about following you, Lord, that you would give them the courage to take a step and sign up for water baptism. And Lord, you'd help all of us be able to frame our story, just a few words, that would give you praise and you glory and help us silence the lies and the whispers of the enemy in our lives. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.